0: Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfomensa. And on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome everybody to a brand new episode of I Dane Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamenza. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, I welcome you and you hope that you come back for future episodes and more content. If you are a returning listener or watcher of this podcast, I welcome you back. And I hope that tonight's episode is one that is informative, enlightening. And inspiring for you. So, before we get to the main event, as always, I want to share a few quick announcements. Uh, first and foremost, we have our Dane Talk Apparel Shop, and we're consistently putting out new material, new designs for the educators within our spectrum. Whether you are a prayer professional, whether you are a librarian, classroom teacher, principal, administrator, wherever you are doing, we will have a shirt hoodie for you so if you are interested in getting some new gear for this spring season be sure to link up with us at the teesprings website at teesprings.com backslash stores backslash the identity talk apparel shop and then also if you are looking to get some more professional development for the new year we have our Shape to the Teacher Identity 101 program, which is virtual, online, on Teachable. And to learn more about how you can get credits for this program and the different content within it, you can contact us at Conley.com backslash IDETalk, numeral four, educators. So make sure you link up with us to learn more about that. All right, people. Uh, We have a brand new episode, as I already said, and this is a special one. Uh, We're going to be talking about indigenous educators. And so often we hear about the plight of black educators, Latinx educators, and even to a certain degree, Asian educators. But so often we don't talk enough about what goes on in our education system within the indigenous cultural context. So today's episode is one that's going to be very educational for myself, so I'll be learning with all of you as you're learning, whether you're watching or listening. And I'm just excited about this because I've been waiting for a while to have this conversation. So tonight we have ourselves a trailblazer, educator, activist, and a true revolutionary in this space. And she is here to talk with us about what indigenous education looks like what it should look like in our in America and beyond and what we need to do to address that situation so without further ado I want to bring on Mrs. Trisha Mokino to the podcast to talk with us so let's bring her on hi
1: hi Kwame thank you
0: how you doing Tricia
1: I'm good just grateful for life
0: grateful for the children. Yes, it's a blessing. They are all a blessing, Uh, but it is an honor to have you on. And I am very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, So much to go into, uh, but to get us started, it's a basic question that I ask all my guests, Mm -hmm. just to tell us a little bit about yourself and what ultimately brought you into the field of education?
1: What brought me into the field of education, I think probably started with being able to see my own mother as an educator. My mom is a first generation college graduate. My father had passed away in 1979 when I was almost five years old. And I come from a pretty a village where our language is still intact, our traditions are strongly guarded from the outside, where oftentimes white people were frowned upon if seen in, in the village because of the context of the ways uh, in which they took advantage of everything that they see in with regard to our ceremonies, like writing them down and stuff, um, and just like an anthropologist. And so I grew up in a time where if you didn't know your language, you were made fun of. And because my parents were from two different villages, they talked to me. They used the language of English, but I did uh, grow up with my grandparents, which just I am so grateful and so lucky that I was that my grandparents, my maternal grandparents helped my mother um, to raise me. But she went to college they let her go to college my grandfather my grandparents were very supportive of her and so she got her degree and became a teacher and and started her career at santa fe indian school which is a boarding school not in the horrific way that boarding schools began for indigenous children in settler colonial america but had become like turned the tide by the time that she became a teacher in terms of wanting to provide an education setting that um you know honored children more and I think that influence of her seeing her be a teacher and then also being close to one of my coach and her husband in high school I went to a pretty racially mixed high school in terms, I didn't end up going to Sina Fe Indian School where my mom was a teacher at. I didn't, I, I wanted to go to Bernoulli High School, but I, I think often about why I wanted, why I did become a teacher, and I really feel that I have a deep love for my people, and I have a deep love for children, and I care about their learning, and I've always felt that um, the education that we ha- like we were receiving really was not there was no culturally relevancy to it. I mean, I did well, but it doesn't mean I was happy. I I felt like we should have been learning. We should not go to school and just have to assimilate. We should be able to keep a sense of who we are as as people, as children, as students, and that part of me was never so supported. So those are some of the reasons why I, I wanted to become a teacher. And also the encourage from, encouragement from our elders to get an education, because the way that they saw it was when you learn white men's way, white men's education, then we're able to better protect our own language, our own way of life and, and not be fooled as well. So I think that was also an impetus for me.
0: And it's interesting you mentioned culturally relevant pedagogy because we hear this term a lot,
1: mm-hmm.
0: especially within other cultural contexts. But once again, you don't really hear it within the indigenous cultural context. So I really wanna dive into that mm-hmm. because you know we always hear about the whitewashing of American history and, and how we have different biases that are found in different textbooks, different curriculum materials, right? So I guess I want to get a better understanding of what culturally responsive or culturally relevant pedagogy looks like within the indigenous cultural context, uh, just for our listeners who may not be familiar with, with what that looks like or even sounds like.
1: Right. So I just, first, we have to remember the way in which education came to our tribes here in settler colonial United States. Yes. And so remember that the settlers, the European settlers really tried very hard to kill us all, like to kill basically our ancestors. And the reason they did that was that so that they could continue to take the land and take um, and resources land, of course, being the number one thing. And so one of our tribal elders who is a retired professor from the University of New Mexico College of Ed, always says that he's actually also a board member, a founding board member of Care's Children's Learning Center, the school that I co-founded. But he always says, "America, yes, the um, Indian Wars, as they called them, you know, they began to subside in eighteen by the mid eighteen hundreds, eighteen sixties, and at that point." yes that kind of where warfare had stopped but then they took the war to our children and the way that they took the war to our children is through the enactment of and of these Indian boarding schools which were military style boarding schools basically stealing our children uh, uh, threatening indigenous tribes families um, and or saying we'll give you this you know give us your children but really really stealing children and then once these children would arrive in these boarding schools as early as three four five years old they were they the the main thing you know it's interesting that you say identity that's the name of your podcast but that is exactly what they went for is the children's identity first and foremost um not allowing them to speak the language and here there are these children That was their only language, being forced to speak English. So that was one way of really like, I hear people use that phrase, cutting them off at the knees and then removing them from their families. And so that is the beginning of education as it was imposed on our people. We already had a way of teaching and sharing and learning with our children in many of our cultures. Children, our our cultures are built around the respect and and the spiritual beings of children, and so boarding schools disrupted that. So then you get to um, where they found out that they had to continue; they couldn't do these schools anymore. And then you get all of them get funneled, all of us get funneled to public schools. And then you fast forward to 2006, when I was a public school teacher on our reservation, having to teach English reading and writing at a time of no no child left behind. behind, And mm. it, it did not feel good. And for my own daughter, my husband and I had worked really hard um, for her language, our language to be our, her first language, and it was. But then I was like, where am, where are we gonna send her? for early childhood, like an early childhood setting, when she becomes three or four, that will continue her language because all the early childhood settings were Head Start, Pre-K, and they all centered English. And so that that's when we began Kara's Children's Learning Center. And so KCLC is a language immersion school that was responding to our tribe's need to revitalize the language. And so culturally relevant pedagogy or I like to say culturally sustaining pedagogy. I didn't even know what those words were when we started but that's what we were doing and so when you immerse children in their language then everything is embedded in language, culture, worldview, our indigenous knowledge systems and you have everything at your fingertips when you are immersing children in their native language, and all, of course, then all the then all the lessons that you're able to build off of that is you're building it off of our worldview. So then we use the Montessori method, and of course they still have to learn English reading and writing, and and then that helps us address address that. But because of the fact that we're using our language every day, our children are connected to who they are every day, as opposed to if they were being in a public school, then there's not that direct connection every day.
0: Right, all these things ring true. And you mentioned Montessori. So I actually have a connection to Montessori. So two of my nieces attended Montessori school during their kindergarten years. Mm And I actually interviewed years ago to teach at the Montessori school, and I had no idea what it was. So uh-huh. I can remember the founder of the school giving me a book on the life of uh, Dr. Maria Montessori, mm-hmm. which is what the model named after. So for those who don't know who Dr. Uh, Maria Montessori is, uh, she is of Italian descent, I believe, and mm-hmm. She wasn't just an educator. She was also like an actual doctor. She was just a, a phenomenal woman who had many gifts. But I know you can go much deeper into it than than I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I know with the mind story model, it's very much hands-on. It's very tactile, which is what I loved about it. And unlike our traditional methods of education, mm-hmm. it's pretty much dictated by the learning pace of the child. So if they're not ready to quote unquote move on, you know, mm-hmm. in our K-12 system, we like yeah. to promote people to the next grade level, right. even when they're not ready, which mm-hmm. is which is part of problems with NCLB, mm-hmm. uh, to begin with. The mind story model is really focused on the teacher to student relationship. Mm-hmm. And there are times where, as you know, that student can be with that teacher for Two, three years at a time. So they're not focused on age groups or anything like that. So I'm really interested in learning about the merging of the Montessori model with the indigenous cultural context, because I know you have the Indigenous Montessori Institute where Mm -hmm. you're training teachers within that. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested in learning about how that came about, but also how the Montessori model really compares to other traditional models of education, as I started Mm -hmm. to explain.
1: Right. Yeah, those are really, really great questions. So I think maybe I might answer the second one first. So how does the Montessori model compare to other traditional models of education? I think for me, um, I started in public school, our local public school in 1999. And at that time I was teaching already in our summer, Coach T summer youth language immersion program. And I saw, and then I started to learn about Montessori as a first year public school teacher. And what, what always first and foremost attracted me was the way she centered children and the gifts of children and the development of children but the way she recognized their spiritual beings. And that is what always just ranks and touched me because that is how we see our children. So already there was a match right there in terms of how how you view, view children. And as I have become trained and learned more about Montessori, she just was really, had done a good job of like observing children and um offering up according to how children develop and a lot of the things that she talked about in terms of like the hands are the instrument of a person or a human's intelligence the importance of how she knew that children even though they're not talking yet but they're absorbing everything from the environment and now when they get to age three now we need to um provide a prepared environment with things that they can um that things that will then connect to all their prior experiences and so the tactile piece is really what spoke to me as well because of our language um, revitalization efforts and trying and trying to reteach our language and here is already this prepared environment and here is the materials in it and you just talk to children naturally uh, you know that to me that was already a tool that a possible tool that we could use to help us in our language revitalization efforts as opposed to and so it's really child-centered as opposed to traditional education public school education head start um the dominant narrative of early childhood where that is really based. That is not at. It's not teach. It's not child centered. It's teacher centered. It's school readiness centered, as opposed to human development centered, and um, I feel like that's the major difference right there. And so, for Caris Children's Learning Center, we opened the school in fall of 2012. So September 19, 2012. We're in our ninth year. Order, and it took us 16 years to open. And we opened with, in partnership with our tribe of Cochiti with the permission of our tribal council. And I just wanted to say real quick, there are over 560 tribes in the United States. So we're not like a monolith. I just want to be careful that even though we have a lot of the same values, we're still different sovereign nations. And so we couldn't open without the permission of our tribal leadership but what we already recognized is that we would need to train teachers the way we needed them to be trained in language revitalization techniques, dual language education, and Montessori. So we knew we couldn't send them to UNM or CNM because they would come back to us and we would just have to retrain them, which I, I want to acknowledge um, Dr. Maria Mariana Soto Manning out of Columbia Teachers College and the way she says that we... To this day, teacher education programs are still rooted in white supremacy.
0: And I just had a Dr. Brie Picower on the show who talks about disrupting whiteness Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in teacher education. Mm -hmm. And she mentions this very concept, which is still very much profound in too many of our uh, teacher education programs. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about the Indigenous Montessori Institute is that it accounts for the fact that in early childhood, that age level, that's the best time for children to pick up languages Mm -hmm. and to pick up words and vocabulary. Like I'm looking at my son who's learning Spanish just like that. And he's only three years old. Mm -hmm. And that's because my mother-in-law is from Panama. So Spanish is the first language. So whenever they talk on the phone, she's Mm -hmm. always speaking Spanish to him. And it's so interesting how he's able to pick up the language so quickly. And then for me, I'm pushing 40 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling. I'm just yeah. struggling to, to pick it up. So I, I think from a developmental standpoint, mm-hmm. it works perfectly. And then with the Montessori piece, so often our traditional K-12 system, we talk about project-based learning or experiential learning, right? Mm-hmm. But when yeah. you look at the Montessori model, it's very much that because of the fact that it's hands on. You're doing all these different things. Right. But so often we're pressured to get kids prepared for a test that we know are culturally biased and don't speak to our identities yeah. in this country and beyond. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that the indigenous monster institute is something that is necessary Mm -hmm. and it centers the experiences of indigenous people for sure yeah but i feel like there should be models like that for other cultural groups as well if we're really going to think about this process of deconstructing and dismantling teacher education so i just want to hear more about your thoughts on that
1: yeah so montessori has some of my colleagues amelia sherwood she's a Black Montessorian from Connecticut, and she calls herself the dreamer of Sankofa Learning Center. And then Britt Hawthorne is one of my friends. Uh, Tiffany Jewell wrote this book is anti racist. Katie Kitchens, yep. um, Ayze Sebater, you know, those are all my Montessori BFFs. And, but this is them teaching me, giving me these words that Montessori has the ability to liberate, liberatory. But who has always had access to Montessori? And it has not been marginalized people or children. 84% of the U.S. teacher workforce is white. And so we know in Montessori teacher education, we know that at least 90, 95% of it is white. There's not a lot of Montessorians of color. But for us, again, it was about creating a teacher pipeline for our people that we could create our own teacher pipeline, starting with early childhood this coming year, um, we are really grateful to the Southwest Institute of Montessori Studies who is our partner and does provide the Montessori training and with that we pair the philosophy of indigenous education and what's centered in the philosophy of indigenous education is we have to first and foremost understand the history of indigenous education in this country and the way it was imposed on our tribes but we also have to know and that there's we to dream right to hope that we can create a better education for our children and we need should not look no further than at the outcomes of Black and Indigenous children. You know, Indigenous children, half of our children aren't even graduating from high school. There is something direly wrong if the United States cannot even graduate half of our children from high school. So then that means that's why we have less than 1% children going to college i all you have to do is look at the national association of academic progress your website and it shows all the racial groups um, through the country and by by state and i don't want to be at the mercy of waiting around for universities to educate future teachers the way we need to be educated the other thing i love about montessori and especially in early childhood To me, it trained me way better to to be a way better teacher and understand child development from that point of view, because we also have it in our own way of life, our own worldview of how we understand children. But through school, we have to disrupt because if we keep training teachers to teach in a way that is inflicting violence on our children, that is causing our children not to feel good about themselves. That still comes from a savior perspective. Um, And again, who has access? Who has control? So disrupting, we just need more Montessorians of color, but of course, indigenous Montessori teachers and just teachers in general, but that think how we want our children to learn and think and then understand the need for our language, not just so they can go work and produce That's not what we're born for. That's not what our children are born
0: for. You're absolutely right about that. And when I think about the Montessori model, it gives educators the creative license to be innovative, Mm -hmm. right? So often we talk about good teaching, good pedagogy. And I think we, in our traditional K-12 system, we get so caught up with frameworks, whether it's Common Core whether it's new generation science standards, whatever the framework is, and we treat it as if this is the end all be all. You have to follow this in order to teach children. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems that I've had with teacher education programs, even my own experience in the teacher education programs, the fact that it was all about compliance, like you need Mm -hmm. to know this in order to get this. Everything is very structured and systematic. Right. Even the people that we learn in these teach education programs, they're not even centering our own cultural experiences, which goes back to your point about having the Indigenous Montessori Institute giving educators the opportunity to not only learn about the Montessori model, but how it fits within the context of Indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. You don't see that in a traditional teach education program. Nor do you see it for for black people, for Asian people or Latinx people. So right. I think it's important for teachers to know that you don't need to be constricted to curricula or just yes. models, because I think that's part of the problem. We feel like we have to follow this in order to be great teachers when obviously you come with the tools, you come with your culture, your experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what brings out the best educational experiences for children.
1: Right. And coming with love. Right. When you when you have a love for children, when you have a love for your people, you know that is almost like in a way the most basic, the basic thing and the most important thing. Because part of what's wrong with traditional education is we don't trust children, right? That's why there's so much control. Like there yeah. has like there has to be that control. But when you trust children, um, we believed my own people believe that children self construct. And then Montessori, the same thing. Like we trusted that when the child is ready to learn the corn dance, they'll learn it when they're ready. They'll participate when they're ready. We're not gonna force them like organized um, Christianity, organized religion. You know, That's one thing that was told to me from my grandparents and my aunt, my mom, my mother-in-law, like don't force the girls to dance. They'll dance when they're ready. Children will read when they're ready. But do we allow that for them in traditional schools? We don't. And then that no. just starts to affect their their self-esteem in so many ways. And I, I want to say real quick for the Indigenous Monastery Institute, it's not just for Indigenous people. Anybody can attend, anybody. And we know that there are Indigenous people all over the world. And what we we what we hope to provide with the Indigenous Monastery Institute is just a framework. But Use the tools in service to what your people want, you, what you all want, any people, any tribe for what you want for your children.
0: Right. And I think the keyword word there is framework, mm-hmm. meaning that it's a template that okay. can be customized to your particular context. Yes. So going back to teacher education, we all have practicums. We do our student teaching semester Mm-hmm. And then we go into the classroom the very next year. Mm-hmm. and we're and we're coming in with what our mentor teachers taught us. And we haven't quite figured out who we are mm-hmm. as educators. And that process takes even longer because you don't really get taught a whole lot about the self-work that's involved in becoming an educator. It's very much, this is what you need to do instructionally. Yeah. This is how you do a lesson plan. This is how you do classroom management,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is also rooted in whiteness as well. Right. You know, whether you talk about lining kids up, kind of this militarized, yeah. you know, idea of management, right, that we see so often in our K-12 districts. But yeah. I think, you know, when we talk about just how we educate teachers, the self-work is so important because we need to know who we are. Right. That's so key.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I really appreciate that about Montessori because she also talks about the self-preparation of the teacher, but also the spiritual preparation of the teacher. Basically, like you have to check yourself and don't put that on children. That's the same thing we're told as parents in my in our way of life, like when you're going to go breastfeed your child, don't take your bad thoughts with you. You breastfeed with good thoughts. You breastfeed happily so that you're feeding, not just nourishing your child with food, but also with um, we what we all want in life for our children, for our people. There's just, Everybody wants this, is our children to experience joy, to experience health to experience a peaceful way of being like every all of us want that and especially of course marginalized peoples but always like checking yourself and it's not the child's fault if something happens to the child if they're not succeeding or you know something's going on you don't look to blame the child you look at the environment and we as adults are a part of that environment so Yeah, to look at
0: ourselves. Yes, we do. And as we've been talking about just what it can look like, what it should look like, you know, you and I, we've taught in the public school setting, and then you've also branched off into CARES Children's Learning Center, Mm -hmm. which is phenomenal. And you're hearing more people talk about this idea of, let's just create our own. Mm -hmm. We already know that this school system which is rooted in whiteness and white hegemony is not designed for us in the first place. We, we know that, but let's, let's imagine, let's mm-hmm. reimagine for a second. I hate to use that term because that term has been appropriated so much, but let's use it for this question. In a utopian world, what specific actions should traditional school districts take to center the cultural historical and lived experiences of indigenous people in K-12 education beyond with fidelity. Mm -hmm. So like doing the work for real.
1: Mm -hmm. Before I answer that question, I want to just give a shout out to the director of the Indigenous Montessori Institute, which is Tracy Cordero. And she helped to, her and Mara Madison helped, we did it all together to create that with our partners. But to your question, everybody needs to acknowledge settler colonialism. Everybody needs to acknowledge that here in settler colonial USA, that Carish Children's Learning Center, we should not have to be having to raise money for KCLC to fund it, but we do. But any money that anybody has in the United States, any corporations, any foundation, state, federal government, government money, that is our children's money. That is our children's resources and it was taken. So when is truth ever going to be acknowledged around that? And so in that, you ask about that utopian world, teaching truth. And one of the things going back to Dr. Suina, he says is that um, as indigenous people, yes, we are a part of, and we do identify with other marginalized people of color, but we're also different in that, we are the indigenous people of these lands and we were already a sovereign people. We were already each unto one of us, every single tribe were sovereign nations. So I think I would like to see indigenous Um, people on any kind of board, I don't care if it's a school board, we need to see Indigenous people on foundation boards, we need to see um, Indigenous people at all levels of government, because we really have to have our voices um, in the conversations, but it has to be the right kind of voice where we're constantly interrogating coloniality, settler colonialism in all areas, not just, you know, of course, Of course, education, but that is what my hope is, is that we are creating that kind of education where our children are developing that critical consciousness and they're not just going to take what people tell them. And that's part of the gift of language, is when you're able to think in your own language, you're not at the mercy of English. You're able to also problem solve that many more ways when you're also bilingual, And bilingualism isn't just English and Spanish. That's always the default for when somebody thinks about bilingualism. We need to know that bilingualism is any given language. And so for us, it's English and Karis. But, you know, in Africa, I hear about Africa that so many people there speak three or four languages. You know, I hear in South America that people speak you know, three languages and United States is just so backward in that. But of course that goes back to colonialism and control and the need to erase always, and not just United States, but erasing indigenous people in Brazil and South America, those tribes are
0: constantly
1: fighting with their
0: governments. Right. And what do you think about settler colonialism? What are your thoughts are about it? I mean, in the end, it's cultural redlining. When you think about it, mm-hmm. like you, people are being redlined from their culture. And as somebody who has two parents who are from Ghana, West Africa, they grow speaking a native language and then English mm-hmm. and then me being born in the States, my parents didn't teach me how to speak the native language because... You know, they came to the States in the 70s where the mindset was, as an immigrant, we need to learn the language here in the States in order for us to to survive, in order for us to navigate society. Right. So that was their mindset. So in no way do I blame them for me not being able to speak, you know, my native language. But now that I live out here in the motherland and I go to different countries and I see people able to switch back and forth between the languages. So I see bilingualism in so many different contexts here in the motherland. It just makes me think about the fact that I feel a void Mm -hmm. in myself because I'm not able to speak it. And my wife as well. She has a mom who's from Panama, but my wife, she can't really speak Spanish like that. So Mm -hmm. she's all on Duolingo trying to figure it out right now. And another app, so. It's so interesting that you mentioned bilingualism because you're right. We always focus on English and Spanish, but yet you have all these other languages out there, especially in America that we that's always considered a melting pot of cultures. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people whose cultures are being redlined and I think it's important for us to. To definitely touch on that piece, give you a uh, question. Sure,
1: I don't totally understand redlining. I always hear that term, especially and how it's also used to marginalize and um, oppress like the Black communities, right? What yes. does that mean? Or can you so, explain that to me?
0: Sure. Um So redlining is just basically a way to separate a marginalized group from a resource okay. that can better their conditioner situations. When we think about, for instance, Jim Crow, mm-hmm. you know, within the black community, you had black people going to separate bathrooms that weren't of the same quality as their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. We weren't going to schools that were of the same caliber as the white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Even we think about housing. This is really popular with housing. Yeah. Whenever there were a lot of black people moving into a certain neighborhood, right. the white people who are occupying neighborhoods started to move away. Mm-hmm. So then, the value depreciated within those neighborhoods, and then they white people went ahead and created their own neighborhoods in another section, right? So redlining is just a way to keep the marginalized group away from getting okay. the resources and the tools and necessary in order to better their situation, their condition. Right. So when you hear redlining, it could be in different contexts, but okay. there's a whole history of regard yeah. to that.
1: Yeah. Okay. i just been hearing it a lot more lately on the news but I, i'm sorry i didn't mean to distract you from your other question but that was just running in my head so i wanted to ask you
0: oh no no problem no this is but this is what this show is about this is about education so just as i'm learning you're learning listeners and watchers are learning as well so yeah please don't hesitate to ask any more questions okay so this is the big question and, and just in full transparency, I'm guilty of this, too, because we talk about the plight of indigenous people in the United States. And we also talk about just the fact that they're erased within our society. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy to forget that they're around. And just speaking in my experience, mm-hmm. I've never had a colleague or a coworker who predominantly identified as indigenous Cause I know there's a more pronounced population in New Mexico where you are in Arizona mm-hmm. and, and other places where there are a lot of indigenous reservations, but mm-hmm. you know, growing up in Connecticut mm-hmm. and then eventually going to Philadelphia, then Boston, I didn't really see a lot of people who identified that way. Right. Although I had some colleagues who may have had a percentage of indigenous blood in them, whether there's Cherokee and whether it's another tribe. And they said, all right, that's identified with that as well. Mm -hmm. So I want to know your thoughts about the BIPOC acronym, because it's been very controversial Mm -hmm. in different circles, even in our educational circles. So if you're a Latinx person, for instance, how come there's no L in the acronym, right? If you're Mm -hmm. Asian, how come there's no A? How come we're kind of lumped into that POC part of acronym? right? But with regard to the I, with regard to Indigenous Mm -hmm. people. What actions must be taken to prevent the eye from being invisible mm-hmm. within that acronym? Because even though we say, you know, BIPOC this, BIPOC that, it kind of goes back to the, like the difference between allyship and then being a co-conspirator. Okay. I can say BIPOC all day and affirm and empathize with the plight and the struggle and, and just the erasure of indigenous people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But there's an action that has to happen.
1: Right.
0: once I experience that empathy. So I really want to know your thought on just this whole BIPOC controversy in certain yeah. circles.
1: Well, I actually appreciate it because to me it's centering um, two communities and that's the Black and Indigenous. And I always go back to children and I always go back to Black and Indigenous mothers. Black and Indigenous women are the, are have the highest rates of preterm labor 14% for, the, for Black women and then like 12.5, something like that for Indigenous women. So then when a child is born prematurely, they're already starting off in a difficult way in life, which is a risk factor for all sorts of stuff. And then I think about the outcomes of Black and Indigenous children. And so there's a direct history to that when you think about the history of the United States. And it doesn't mean that we're not acknowledging um, You know Latin Latin American people and people that speak um, Spanish because there's plenty of indigenous people that come from Mexico that come from South America who are indigenous but this is about history and that history is tied to systemic racism and so that is what I appreciate about the term so it doesn't mean that like me personally, and how we teach about this um, at KCLC or at EMI at the Indigenous Montessori Institute, um, the people that we work with, Embracing Equity, is founded by a brilliant Korean American woman, Daisy Han Hejin, um who partners with the Embracing Equity. So, with who partners with us um, at the Indigenous Montessori Institute. So her organization, you know. She's been going through a lot right now. I'm not sure if you follow embracing equity, but her own um desire to do the work of anti-racism and work for everybody else and sometimes, you know, even forgetting about the importance of herself and the work of and and the things that have happened to Asian Americans. But at the same time, like you said, You know, it is absolutely not about the oppression Olympics, you know, to use the term that you use. But it is about being in solidarity and also understanding that there are going to be times where even though we want to be in solidarity, you know, we can't. But I feel like the majority of the time we can. And I guess I would like to see everybody else. We You know, people, that's the number one problem that we face is erasure Um, that was found by Illuminatives and Reclaiming Truth projects. And because of that erasure, and then we're not seen as human, you know, other than how can people take language revitalization seriously or the fights for our sacred land, the fights for our lands just in general, the fights for any any given one, our water rights we shouldn't have to be fighting for water, (laughs) whatever. That's a whole nother story, but I, I, you know, I appreciate it. And I I feel like it's a way that has given amplification to the communities that, um, you know, that have, that were who, institutional racism is so, it's so there. I don't, I don't know how to say that. Sorry, I might have lost four words. And I understand people's arguments, but I personally um, appreciate it. Although people use it, use it, use it, especially in anti-racism um, circles. I We wrote an article called Solidarity Necess- Necessitates Reciprocity. And then it talks about settler colonialism in anti-racism. So you have I don't countless times. I mean, this is how you and I got connected like this. I'm like, yoo hoo. You know, this isn't just, this is not just to you, but yoo hoo. I see everybody out represented except us, except our people. And so that's why I'm so grateful to you. But I feel like it's done a lot of good in bringing about awareness.
0: Right. And awareness is just one piece of the puzzle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So land acknowledgements land acknowledgement. start with land acknowledgement in the classroom every day because when you raise that consciousness in children and then as adults then people then are remembering oh yeah we were not the first people to this land or you know there are real and then what's the action so one of our friends he's he's black i think he's in boston somewhere jimmy jimmy just but he says that he always acknowledges the land. And then the other day he um, says he donates to Mashpee Wampanoag's efforts um, in reclaiming. I forgot. Um, oh, there's some opioid opioid crisis somewhere. I can't remember which, which. There's a couple bands of Wampanoag. I can't remember which one. But it's, so then, yes, land acknowledgement. And that's not enough. What's the action that can follow? You know, support, consider, um, supporting a language immersion school. Consider um, talking to parents you know, with power and how are they acknowledging indigenous people with, with wherever they work. Um, consider looking at legislation that indigenous people in your state are fighting to get past, understanding why. Um, but within the classroom, the most basic thing that every single classroom should be doing is a land acknowledgement is um, taking children. Athena Montessori um, really supported us in our Kilometers for Caris fundraiser. They were just amazing. They're out of Austin, Texas. But what are real actions that? teaching children to take you know of course the mascot issue there's a number of issues missing and murdered indigenous women and people there's just so much Um, but I feel like the most basic thing that anybody can do any teacher in every single classroom doesn't matter early childhood all the way to university setting when you do those land acknowledgments and then expect an action to come you know going back to that project-based learning then that
0: helps to raise that awareness and these are all excellent points which i've been writing down because i I feel like we need to make sure that we get this information to everybody uh for sure but i think what you mentioned in that is the fact that our oppression and just the erasure is the common thread regardless of where you are but you also mentioned intersectionality Mm -hmm. right and it goes back to what you mentioned earlier about indigenous people not being monolithic right. cuz you have some people who are indigenous but they're also black. Yes, yeah. some who are indigenous but they're Asian as well, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So or whatever combination they mm-hmm. are, you can't just silo the different letters in the acronym. Mm-hmm. Cuz you have to understand that some people might identify with all five letters. Some mm-hmm. might identify with just maybe two of the letters, right? Mm -hmm. So we always have to keep that intersectionality in mind, especially when we talk about our LGBTQIA2 plus community. Hopefully I get all the letters in there. (laughs) They also have to play a role in this as well, because that also shapes how we look at different identities.
1: Right. Well, and then that also goes to English though. Look at these world languages who have dictated because of the way of the worldview of English and then the connection to Christianity and the, and the way that they have said that homosexuality is abomination. So we, we, we cannot forget the power of language and the power of colonial languages like English, Spanish, French, Dutch, you know, cause in Africa, how many countries were co- colonized by the French or by the Dutch? And those, those languages are all related And then you look at indigenous languages. I don't care if it's in Australia, Africa, China, you know, there's indigenous people all over. And there was a much more humanizing way of seeing people who were different or who identified gender wise differently. And I, you know, it's not for me. What I was taught with my grandparents is it's not for me to say whether I agree with how you identify. You know, you're a human being. My grandpa always used to say, when I cut your skin open, you still bleed the same blood that I do. But we know that racism is a construct that was created here that then has gone all over the world and then is very, and then the way that racism um, perpetuated anti-Blackness, right? So that Um, African people could be enslaved because they recognized that they couldn't keep enslaving indigenous people because our ancestors were the first to be enslaved here. But we have to remember the power of English and organized religion. And that, that wasn't always the way, you know, that and for me, that's why we hold on so hard and we're fighting for our language because our religion, our way of being, our spiritual way of relating to the spiritual world and other realms is is an embedded in, in our language, and that's why that's our push to like, yeah, by bilingualism. Of course, yes, that's a that's a given. But we're not worried about English. i are not worried about Spanish. They have millions of speakers. We have we all have a responsibility to protect and help people who are trying to maintain their languages because that is part of our interconnectedness and our survival it is part of biodiversity and it is a part of everything
0: and it goes back to why we think that english and spanish is the default for bilingualism who determines that right, right. and as you were talking i just thought about a previous episode i did with my good friend francois denot who mm-hmm. people know as the woke Spanish teacher on Instagram. Right. And she talked about this very issue at her own school where she had a parent who wanted her child to learn Latin
1: uh-huh.
0: as opposed to, I think it was Spanish or French, but it was, it was like other romance languages, right? Mm-hmm. Which are very much centered in, in our K-12 right. districts. We, we talk about romance languages all the time. Right. But I think when we talked about that point, her thought was, well, why are we talking about Latin? Like who speaks Latin on a day-to-day basis? Latin is good for learning about linkages and stuff, but are you really speaking it to people on a regular basis? So I think we do need to find a way to incorporate the other languages as well. You know, the indigenous languages, African languages, because if we're going to be talking about anti-racism, let's bring those other languages on. Let's, let them be options for people to choose so they can learn, right? Right. And that's a radical move, but that's the direction we need to go if we're going to be very serious about this conversation and this movement. We have to go there. Yeah, we do. So we are approaching the hour. And it's so funny. I always say that these are going to be 30 to 45 minute conversations, but they never are. (laughs) And I might have to just switch it up. But no, this is great because it just means that there's just so much work that needs to be done, so much more that has to be unpacked when it comes to this conversation. And mm-hmm. one hour is nearly not enough time to talk about everything that has to be done to address all the different things we've talked about tonight. So yeah, yeah it's just not enough time. Yeah. But I, I do want to get to our lightning round, right? Okay. To close this out. So there are a few questions that I sent out um, hopefully I had a chance to you know think about them and research them. Mm-hmm. If not, that's fine. I think mm-hmm. organic answers are always the best answers when it comes to this part of the show. So first question I have for you. With all the work you're doing, what do you do to exercise self-care? What's your favorite self-care activity right now?
1: Right now, um, my daughter, uh, renny we we are running a lot, and running is an original part of our culture. But running, I had a pretty difficult year, the last two thousand nineteen into twenty, and woo! And did my first ten k last week. I ran wow. six miles. My husband and my daughter are running. They ran. Oh, I don't know, way past that. Um, our, so we're all running. So I love to run and walk, and I just I've always loved to dance you know, hip hop, R&B. Yeah, that's my thing. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, here at home, we have our ceremonies and our dance is not for entertainment. We don't have a lot of social dances. It's all really spiritual, religious. Um, So that's like a different context, but we're not doing anything right now because we can't because of COVID. But yeah, that's what I love.
0: All right. Since you mentioned dancing and and music, what songs are currently in your queue right now what are you listening to right now any um, favorite songs
1: so always my 90s always tribe called quest oh uh,
0: stop that <laughs> yeah that's my favorite group of all time okay, come so on we're
1: gonna have to have another call call
0: me we gonna have to talk but, but real quick to- real quick i have to stop you real quick okay What is your favorite Tribe album? Uh, Mine mine is a tie between Low End Theory and Midnight Marauders. I don't know mm, about you.
1: The same. The same.
0: Wow.
1: (laughs) Probably Midnight Marauders. I'd probably go that way a little bit
0: more. Okay. Okay. Wow. Because I was
1: in college then.
0: Wow. Yeah. But I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, so them all the time. Of course, Mary J. Blige, uh, my daughter, like, listens. She loves all the same kind of music I do. But Jasmine Sullivan, I've recently discovered her music lately. But the, I don't know how you say this. I don't know if it's the Hotels, but H E U X. (laughs) I don't know.
0: Oh, oh, the play, I play on word. I yeah,
1: I Yeah, do. Yep. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, but there's, I love this song and I play it all the time. That's called Pick Up Your Feelings. I love, I just, I love her voice. Yeah. yeah. And then of course, like our own, our own songs like that we're able to, if, if we have any access to them. And, oh, I forgot. I was going to tell you one more. Oh, Tribe Called Red. They're out of Canada. They're um, I don't know, like hip hop tribe called Red. And then I know Most Deaf did a cool song with them. Uh, I, I'll send it to you on Instagram.
0: You have to because I love Yasinbe. I love Most Deaf. So really anything amazing. with him associated with it, I will listen to it. So yeah, yeah. please send I'll that send to it me. To you.
1: Okay. I'm yes. going to write that down to send
0: it to you. Yes. I might find it on Spotify or something. I might just have to look it up yeah. myself. Yeah. Okay. All right, that's awesome. And as you're writing that down, I want to know, what are three books? It could be your top three books that you would recommend to not just educators, but anybody who are, who's interested in building their capacity about indigenous culture. I know there are a lot of them out there, but what are your top three? My top three would
1: be Ceremony by Leslie Martin Silko ceremony marrow thieves that's like a middle high school book it's a by an indigenous author in canada i can't remember what tribe she is i'm just looking up when i read books i don't always keep them oh the round house that's so content house. yeah by louise erdrick that's so contemporary she won the national book award for that but that's about missing and murdered indigenous women i mean it's a novel though it's a story but Oh my God, that's an amazing book.
0: All right. Those so are all novels. A, and novels are fine too because it's all rooted in what's happening now contemporarily and, and just the history. So yeah, we love novels.
1: Yeah, this one is on my to read this though. A Yupik Worldview, mm-hmm. A Pathway to Ecology and Spirit. And that's by a Alaska native. And then uh, Greg Kahete's Look to the Mountain, those are on my to read list to do. Oh, this one, Education for Extinction. I'm, I'm reading this one too. It's about American Indians and the boarding school experience.
0: All right, awesome. So a lot of books to read.
1: Mm-hmm. All
0: right. got them all down. And then my final question for you is, if you can invite three influential women, because it's still women's, a uh, history month that is coming to a close. Dead or alive? Mm-hmm. Who would they be?
1: Just to here or to the school or just anywhere?
0: Just three women okay. in general.
1: Okay, Wilma Wilma Mankiller. And she's the former chief of the Cherokee Nation. But she's the one that did the quote. Uh, I don't think any. Anyone can talk about the future of their people or organization without talking about education. Whoever controls the education of our children controls our future. So her, definitely. Um, bell Hooks. That's a popular one. Wilma well, i man killer. I think Bell Hooks. Um, oh, I know. Mariana. Mariana Soto Manning. She's badass. She's a professor at Columbia Teachers College.
0: Oh, who you talked about earlier? Yeah,
1: early, she's yeah, an early childhood professor. She's, she's. I think she's from Brazil. All
0: right, awesome, Mariana Soto Manning. Okay,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. all right. So you got three. That's three.
1: <laughs>
0: awesome. But Trisha, this has been a great conversation. We got to find some time to do it again because there's part, still so much more to have uh, to. Part, part two.
1: Part but, two. <laughs> but this time, but this time you need to let me interview you.
0: Oh, I love being interviewed. I like to ask questions, but you know what? I like to answer them as well. <laughs> okay.
1: So then you just plan that one.
0: All right. Yes, please. I, I would love that. Uh, but Trisha, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has just been a great conversation. I hope that we have more dialogue along these lines. But before you go, if you can let people know how they can connect with you, Maybe even the Caris Children's Learning Center, if they want to learn more information about that, where you are on social media, just so we can continue to support the work you're doing.
1: Okay. So Caris Children's Learning Center is kclcmontessori.org. And then I started um, a personal website and there's a lot of resources there on Indigenous education and educators and curriculums. That is www.indigenouscheerleader.com. And then I'm on Instagram um, with Indigenous Cheerleader and Indigenous Educators. And I'm on Twitter with Indigenous Cheerleader. And then um, KCLC is at KCLC6 on Instagram and Twitter. And on Facebook is CARES Children's Learning Center. And Emi, the Indigenous Montessori Institute, is under KCLC.
0: Awesome. And people, make sure you... You check them out. And uh thank you so much, Tricia. Uh this is this has been awesome. And uh, okay. we'll definitely do this again. And hopefully we so can bring much. some more people too to talk more oh. about this. Maybe some of the people from the Institute or yeah we'll, Tracy. Got to, we'll, yeah, we'll we'll think we'll think of something.
1: Okay. And just know I'm always uplifting you too and your work, and that'll keep happening from our part at Indigenous Educators and Indigenous Trainer.
0: Yes, and you have been, and I appreciate all the support, all the amplification that uh, you've done your end, and and I just look forward to continuing to uh, reciprocate that support.
1: Thank you, may Take care and love to your
0: family. All right, love to your family as well. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Peace. All right, people, there you have it. Another incredible episode of Adane Talk Educators Live. Wow. These episodes just keep getting better and better. But until our next episode, as I always love to tell you all, I wish you all good night, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, people. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.